0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. This is without question the interview of the day. And and I should say Arthur, an immense, immense honor. Arthur Levitt, who you know, he comes on chairman of the former chairman of the SEC. Arthur Levitt leveled the playing field for the individual investor in the vicinity of the seventies and into the nineteen eighties, and he did it with John Bogle. Arthur, you wrote the foreword for the Clash of the Cultures. Investment versus speculation for John Bogle. He changed how all of us think of money, didn't he?
1: Yes, he did. He was a real master in terms of understanding the costs of money, something frequently overlooked by investors, particularly with respect to mutual funds, those fees that are up front and seem so minute, are so massive in terms of their implication of loss or gain. And Bogle was the one who pioneered that. From his beloved home in Lake Placid, New York, uh, he wrote about accounting standards and fought uh, fearlessly for stronger accounting standards so that investors could understand the implications of one fund's costs over another.
2: So Arthur, obviously, you know, just a—you've had a, such a, a wonderful long-term relationship um, with Mr. Bogle. What do you think his lasting legacy will be for the individual uh, investor in the marketplace?
1: I think, uh, above all else, uh, he has taught the vast, vast array of individual investors the true costs of their investments, how minute changes in fees have massive implications in terms of loss or gain. And I think even today the uh, knowledgeable investor gravitates toward uh, the Vanguard fund formula of the lowest possible costs. And I think that the a vast number of sophisticated, knowledgeable investors understand that, and that accounts for the extraordinary success of Vanguard funds. It was ironical that uh, Jack, because he spoke so openly and fearlessly and not necessarily with discretion, was pushed from the management of Vanguard funds, and operated solely out of his home both here and uh both in uh, the east coast and up in lake placid
2: so you know it's it's amazing arthur if we think about it today it's almost common knowledge or accepted knowledge about index funds and etfs tied to index funds and and minimizing fees but when you go back and you take a look at mr bogle's career it was so radical in the mid-70s what his thinking was He, he came from the traditional Uh, mutual fund business, Wellington, uh, one of the big behemoths still today of uh, a traditional mutual fund business. But it really was in, in the mid 70s, early 70s, when he brought this concept of indexing and focusing on costs. It really was radical back then, wasn't it?
1: It was radical because the vast majority of investors like to pick and choose among the array of stocks available to them. And it took an index fund, which really mimicked the market as a whole to be sold as a single unit and a huge number of investors have gravitated toward that and have come to understand the implications of, uh, fees as uh, critical in terms of whether they win or lose in the market.
2: Yeah, it's just, uh, it, it, yeah, you're right. You're exactly right. It's just amazing kind of how that evolved and, and kind of where we are today in some of your more recent conversations with him. Um, what were his thoughts about where he thinks investing will go, should go, the role of the individual investor, the role of the hedge fund? How did he kind of envision how maybe individual investing will will trend going forward? I
1: think that uh, he hoped and believed that the individual investor would take over more of the control of how they invest uh, using funds rather than picking and choosing stocks. I think he had, uh, he had such a firm belief in uh, mimicking the market as a whole, rather than trying to pick stock A or sell stock B. And I think he felt that with the growth of Vanguard and the success of Vanguard and the embrace of other funds in the same concept, the market was going to continue to move in that direction. And that passive investing was going to uh, overtake and uh, really beat out individual stock picking.
2: Arthur Levitt, thank you so very much for, you know, giving us your perspective on the life and the impact of uh, John Bogle, founder of Vanguard Group. Um, You know, obviously revolutionary figure in the world of individual investing.
3: We wrap up the earnings season on Wall Street with Morgan Stanley. Those numbers are imminent when they drop across the Bloomberg. We'll bring you some of the headlines and some of the commentary once the earnings call starts a little bit later this morning. So worldwide, you've got to say the recession fears of December, to some investors at least, already feeling like a distant memory. We've had the C-suite on Wall Street speaking pretty optimistically about 2019, seeing few signs of an imminent turn down. So what's ahead for this market? Jane Foley joining us, Rabobank Head of FX strategy and senior currency analyst. We have faded much of December already, Jane, before the data has validated that move, especially over in China and in Asia as well. Your thoughts on that?
4: Well, to be honest, I still think that December really did mark a change in market sentiment. The market really did take on board the, slower, the slowing global growth, particularly with respect to the U.S. economy. But I think as we've moved into January, I think the market's beginning to, to focus more on, on what that has meant for Europe. And what we've seen, of course, is slower data from Germany. We've seen a, a talk of even a, a technical recession in Germany at the, the end of, uh, of last year, That may not have happened the indication that we got from the german authorities is that we what we saw in the second half of last year was just very moderate growth in fact next to no growth and and hence we have this sparring match if you like in in euro dollar with with the fundamentals of, of both of those major currencies having deteriorated
3: so what's driving euro dollar what are the dominant forces that are going to drive that currency pair over the several the next several months jane
4: you know, I think it's, it's an ugly sisters' competition. I think it's, it has been for, for quite some time, some weeks at least. Pretty easy to put together a, a deteriorated uh, version of fundamentals for the dollar in terms of slower growth concerns over Fed policy, etc. But I think over the next few weeks, so the market really does need to come to terms with what does that mean for the ECB? What does that mean for European growth? And we do have an ECB policy meeting coming up over the next week or, or two, and, and that's going to be important because you know the, the ECB have signal that they may be hike in interest rates, potentially in December. That's what they allowed the market to believe last time around. But since then the market's been thinking, well, you know what? They're going to have to throw liquidity at Europe. There's going to be potentially teltos, etc. So I think the market needs to reconcile its outlook for uh, the the ECB in terms of the guidance that is officially out there.
3: Jen, it's interesting to me that on the FOMC on the Federal Reserve, the most hawkish representative of the FOMC, Esther George, has backed away from an imminent interest rate hike, rate hikes anytime soon, yet one of the most hawkish members of the European Central Bank, Sabine Lautenschlager, is still talking about rate hikes at the ECB. Why is that still happening on the Governing Council of the European Central Bank? Why are they still having this discussion? Because nobody I speak to believes that the ECB can deliver a rate hike against the backdrop that the European economy has right now.
4: I think one of the reasons for that is it's to do with normalisation. If we if we look at the level of interest rates in, in the ECB, it's no wonder that they want to normalise. They want to pull back some ammunition. If they do hike interest rates, then surely they will be having to do it whilst sort of easing liquidity on the other hand so some people are talking about an interest rate hike maybe but Teltro's on the other hand and and this is a very interesting uh, scenario, very interesting situation and again this is one that I think the market really does need uh, clarity on. Certainly it, it does seem from a, just a geological a point of view difficult to understand why the ECB could be hiking interest rates when you have Germany slowing uh, the, the way it has done or in losing momentum and and it's not just Germany, we've seen weaker data from uh, large countries in in Europe such as Italy etc and if at the same time you have the US slowing and China slowing so it does seem uh, perhaps at this junction not particularly logical for the ECB to be pushing ahead uh, with an interest rate hike until you look at the level of the rates and you begin to understand that they do want some normalisation.
3: Well, consumer spending is expect, expected to accelerate over the coming week because our chief Brexit correspondent is going to travel from London over to Switzerland. So as he progresses through the continent, I imagine consumer spending is going to get a lift. Tom, are you there? Yeah, where is he? Are you there, Tom? Have you made it?
0: I've made it here. Oh, congratulations. i Victoria Street. It was very difficult to get here from the green as well. I, you know, you look at the Jane Foley currency transfer station at, um, at Heathrow. It's amazing what she picks up on that. You know, yeah. in the currency
3: conversion. <laughs> Someone's Just making a lot of money her. at Heathrow, aren't they?
0: Uh, Jane's mitting money there as well. Jane, seriously, what happens to the sterling euro relationship of actual day-to-day transactions if Brexit actually Brexit's?
4: Well, you know, once again, it, it's, it's very difficult, I think, for real uh, corporates. I think a lot of people who have been able to to remain on the sidelines have remained on the sidelines. But, you know, there comes a time where real corporates, real businesses have to hedge and they have to get reinvolved, and it becomes extremely difficult for them. Um, so I think over the next couple of weeks, clearly it's going to be really, really crucial. A lot of people in the market, and we see this in, in the price, are betting that there will be some delay, that, that the hard Brexit will not happen. But of course, as it stands, legally, the UK is heading for a hard Brexit on May the 29th. And, and I think for investors to remain confident that that isn't going to happen, yeah. there needs to be some change. There needs to be some legislation in place.
0: But but on a trend, you know, I think of Rabobank, and I understand there's speculation and there's a currency. What's a yen going to do? What's Polish Zloty going to do? I get that. But in the commercial business of hedging business transactions, What actually happens between pound sterling and euro when all of this happens? Well, you know...
4: Again, we can go back to our, our customers, and they are asking us, or they have been asking us, that, that question, you know, for for a while now. A lot of yes. them will have bought protection, but a lot of them will have bought, you know, the, some of the protection that they will have run out. Will start to, will start to fall off the books after after March. So they do need to be very uh, considerate in in terms of what is going to happen the yeah. foreign exchange. But to, but to be fair to them, you know, whilst investors can look at the probability and think well you know what there's a good chance that there could be a delay we'll take our positions accordingly businesses don't have that luxury they have to prepare for a hard Brexit because that is what legally is is potentially going to happen and this puts them in a a really quite difficult position they have to spend that money to, to, to make those preparations and that to be honest I think is their first consideration the foreign exchange is just a complication for them.
3: Jane, great to catch up with you. Jane Foley there, Rabobank Head of FX Strategy, yes. Senior Currency mm-hmm. Analyst.
0: Gerard Cassidy uh, with us with RBC Capital Markets. Gerard, what's the history In other cycles where there are trading misses, is there an understanding in the C-suite that you bounce back or do you make immediate changes to the business plan?
5: I think, Tom, what you do is you anticipate that there will be some uh, bouncing back or normalcy. We all know the fourth quarter was quite unusual in terms of the volatility. You might recall, Tom, in the month of December, we didn't see a single Junk bond underwritten or high yield bonds as they call them today, but we didn't see a single issue underwritten. And so this shows you the severity of the downturn in FIC. So I I don't think there's no knee knee jerk reaction yet. But if these trends continue through six months, that's when you you have to address those issues.
0: John Farrell, you've been all over this. You absolutely nailed the idea of junk bonds uh, being quiet in December. John Farrell, has there been any indication on your property, the real yield, that things have bounced back?
3: Well, the good news is the primary market has reopened, but Gerard, I think the the issue for high yield is that it was a story not just through the fourth quarter, it was a story through the whole year. We had this very soft supply story, and as you know Gerard, it was made up by the leverage loan, the leverage finance business for some of these banks that did actually really well with the exception of the last quarter. So Gerard as we look out to 2019, I'm wondering, are you expecting the high yield supply to still be pretty low and will it be made up in the way it was made up last year with some really solid leverage loan issuers? Thank
5: it's really going to come down to the cost of raising this capital. And you put your thumb on it when you compare it to the leveraged loan versus the junk bond market. And so if the yields in the junk bond market are attractive, companies could tap that rather than going into the leveraged loan market. We did see withdrawals. You know, ETFs and mutual funds are big owners of these leveraged loans now. And the fund outflows in the fourth quarter were quite pronounced. So the demand on the leveraged loan side may not be there as well. So I would suggest that it's going to come down to the cost of raising the money, and if it's more attractive in junk bond land, that's where they'll go.
3: The good news, Gerard, if you look at the likes of Goldman Sachs and, for that matter, Morgan Stanley this morning, the one beat that I can see is on investment banking revenue. The investment banks, the M&A, and, in fact, the vanilla retail banking, last quarter still seem to do okay, Gerard.
5: I, I totally agree with you, especially in the Morgan Stanley numbers. When you look at the three components of investment banking, which is equity underwriting, equity underwriting, Debt underwriting and advisory. Advisory was very strong, whereas the other two were under expectations. And that was, across the board from all of the investment banks.
0: Are are they a bank? I mean, I asked this about Goldman Sachs as well. All this discussion you're having with John Farrow, it doesn't sound like they're a bank. Are they a bank?
5: Tom, it's a really interesting question because you know prior to the crisis, clearly they were not, but because of the crisis they had to become bank holding companies and you might remember, because of the funding. Uh, this was before the Fed opened up the window to everybody including General Electric, as you might recall. But to be able to access the Fed window, these two companies were forced to become bank holding companies, and they signed a document that had the Hotel California Clause in it, which said you can never leave once you come in. And so as a result, these these guys are permanently going to be bank holding companies.
3: Gerard, the winner of earnings season so far, I think, is Bank of America, and I know it's been a big pick for you. Why do they have this business model that's going to do well in the year ahead compared to the Morgan Stanley's and Goldman Sachs of this world?
5: It, it's really interesting because when you take a look at, at, as a percentage of total revenues, how much the traditional trading Sales, investment banking represents of total revenues. Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs are very high. Bank America is is more diversified. So that universal bank model that Brian Moynihan, the CEO of Bank America, has been working on for 10 years ever since the crisis is finally now hitting its stride. And, boy, they they really did, John, put up really good numbers yesterday.
0: 20 seconds, Gerard Cassidy. Is this a pause? Is it just a one-quarter pause, a blip?
5: Um, in terms of trading, I would say yes. This okay. year starting off better. Absolutely.
0: Okay. George Cassidy, thank you so much. RBC Capital Markets, really a foundational guest of all we do at Bloomberg uh, Surveillance.
3: Tom, let's bring in Simon French, shall we? Panmore Gordon, chief economist on the view for the global economy. And I want to start here in the United States, Simon, because if you take the commentary from the C-suite on Wall Street, they're saying this economy is looking good for 2019. If you look at the data, we're going to get initial jobless claims in about 28 minutes, a real-time indicator of the health of the U.S. economy. It looks pretty good. Any reason to believe there are serious cracks out there, Simon?
6: Well, the financial markets are telling us that there are cracks out there. There is a, there's a breakdown, isn't there, between where financial markets are starting to price the outlook for the economy and what the hard macro data is telling us. And at the moment, I think the, the macro data tells us that we're certainly getting a mean reversion move here towards trend U.S. growth, which I, I don't think many people would have been on your show in the last 18 months and say, look, it was sustainable for US, the U.S. economy to expand north of 3% year year. So we are seeing some mean reversion. What I spoke about with Tom earlier on TV was the fact that the risk here is you undershoot to the downside as inventories start to uh, destock, and some of the sentiment that we're seeing in financial markets may translate onto Main Street.
3: Well, the risk also applies to Wall Street as well, Simon, that you fail to draw a distinction between what is a deceleration back towards trend growth that and a potentially big cyclical turn that leads us into a recession i think a lot of people over the last couple of months struggling to get their hands around which one we're experiencing right now which one do you think it is simon
6: So I I think there's mean reversion going on here. So so my own view is that we'll see uh, a lot of the stimulus from both uh, a softening of the tone from central bankers around the world, the Chinese stimulus that is a repeat of the mid-2015 program, and then also the pass-through to consumers from lower energy prices will start to kick in in the second half of 2019, which means that people are going to have to get used to some fairly uh, difficult comps in the first half of 2019, some soft macro data, but not draw linear line right. downwards into the red. Simon, one of
0: the hallmarks of our interview today on John Farrell, one of my other properties, was with us was Mr. Radler of Deutsche Bank, hugely optimistic within the gloom of Europe. As an economist, does the stock market go with a view of economics or is it a separate beast?
6: Oh, it's, it's a separate beast, and I think we've, we don't have to go back far in history to look at moments when you've had economists and equity strategists on, uh, on your shows giving you the perspectives that are fundamentally decoupled, and the question is who wins that, that race on the data. And, he, um, and I think at the moment what we're seeing is uh, valuations across Europe at 11 times 2019 earnings factoring in a, a fairly substantial recession not just in uh, the UK, but also in mainland Europe. And I think that's overdoing it. Look, low trend growth in Europe of you know between 1.2 to 1.5 percent means that a policy mistake could tip you into negative territory. But I do think given the expansion of 2017, early 2018 was two and a half percent, you're just seeing those numbers weighing on the year on year comps.
0: Well, they're weighing on the year on year comps. And the answer is corporations adapt. I mean, is the adaption in this slowdown, the adapting, I should say, in this slowdown, is it just simply cost-cutting? Is that what you and Panmer see for, not only for the United Kingdom, but for America as well?
6: well the sort of uh, let's start with Europe I mean you're not seeing cost cutting front and center at the moment what you are seeing is some caution over investment spending um, meaning that you look at the caution over spare capacity spare capacity has been the big boom element for the global economy over the last six or seven years we've been able to put the spare capacity that's been inactive back to work that's workers that's factories that has broadly now run its course now the last major uh, economic area to use up its spare capacity was the eurozone so of course corporates need to start making decisions on whether they need to start bidding up wages or investing in what looks distinctly end of cycle the US economy though is further down this route and I think it's far more about the policy mistake coming out of the White House and the degree to which that passes mm-hmm. through to consumer investor sentiment that being the clincher as to whether we get a soft landing or something more malign.
3: But Simon there seems to be this obsession and I'm not saying this is coming from you but more broadly there seems to be an obsession with a policy mistake in the united states i'm looking at europe right now i'm seeing a total reluctance to do anything on the fiscal side barely any capacity to do it in southern europe and on the monetary policy side an ecb that has not been able to get away from negative 40 basis points on a depot rate now if we're thinking about policy errors going into a late cycle story I'm way more worried about Europe than I am the United States. At least in the United States, there's no real sign of funding stress, even though we've seen the deficit explode. Yields are still really low. So that's the fiscal Mm -hmm. position. You can worry about it if you like. Okay, we can have that debate separately. But the monetary policy position is a whole lot better than Europe. Europe looks weak on both fronts, and they don't have the growth either.
6: Yeah, so I think it's, there's two different potential policy mistakes going on here. There's the what I would describe as a structural policy mistake in Europe, where they haven't used the period of exceptional monetary policy to repair or repair the structural rigidities, but also complete monetary union. But then in the US, it's a far more cyclical policy mistake, where you see, you know, the the protectionist moves that we're seeing starting to translate through to consumers and investor sentiment which I think m- means they're very different beasts. And if, the reason why I think media attention focuses on the, the US uh, angle is simply because the, the European problem is one that has been around for us for most of the European Monetary Union. So coming on for 20 years, it's quite difficult to get excited about a problem that has been known and has grown in magnitude yeah. over that period rather than one that has appeared on the horizon and there are question marks over its sustainability. But
3: the question... The question that confronts investors is why do I want to allocate capital into a region that I continue to get burnt every time I do it, Simon? And I think we sit here again and the answer is I don't want to. For most of the investors that I speak to here in the United States, is the attitude any different in Europe?
6: Yeah, so, so I think the answer in one word is valuation. So you look at uh, the best part of 16 times 2019 earnings in the, in the US economy, right. 11 times <clears throat> earnings largely in Europe, and you say, is that a valuation mismatch yeah. that I can take advantage of should – the, particularly the geopolitical events in the UK, but war, wider in Europe, start to ameliorate during the course of the year. If you think that is, and normally that PE uh, range is around two and a half to three, so if you think that delta has grown too large, then it's it's simply a, a closing back to its, its long-term average, uh, rather than you're off to the races on the basis of uh, above-trend growth.
0: Simon French, thank you so much with Pamir Gordon. Uh, today, It is a joy to wander over the next 27 minutes with Adam Posen of the Peterson Institute. There are 14 to 17 things we can talk about, including Dr. Posen's going to solve Brexit for us. But in lieu of that, we will talk to Adam Posen about the economics of this moment. Adam Posen, is the Phillips curve still in play as an operative theory? at the Eccles Building, or as De Desai told me yesterday, are we in just simply a state of disequilibrium where it's every central bank for itself?
7: Ooh, that's really good, Tom. Thank you for having me. Um, the answer is both, not not one or the other. So the Phillips Curve is definitely still in play. The widespread belief, including from my colleagues, Olivier Blanchard and Joseph Gagnon and from the leadership at the Fed, is that it kicks in at some point, but that we are clearly experimenting with how low we can go before it kicks in and how steep or accelerating it will be. And I, I frankly, I commend uh, Chair Chair Powell, Vice Chair Clarida, Governor Brainerd, everyone who's come out and said, we can afford to risk it. Um, And particularly that they've been bringing out the fact that central bankers like not to say, which is that you can have wage increases that can come at the expense of profits um, that are not necessarily inflationary.
0: The phrase, how low can you go, is so important, folks. And this goes back to the diversity within economics of using interest rates, the nominal and the real rate, down through negatives, like the German two-year now has been chronically negative. (coughs) Dr. Posen, we can frame this as maybe Lawrence Summers saying, "Ah, maybe not. And someone like Marvin Goodfriend uh, of a more conservative thought saying, use negative interest rates as a constructive tool. How are we doing in our negative interest rate experiment?
7: Well, I think we have to keep reemphasizing that the negative interest rates, Mr. Keene, are mostly what the economy gives the central bank, not what the central bank gives the economy. Yeah, you know, it's, it is, and this is where I think Larry Summers made one of his biggest contributions. It is arguably a reflection of the low desire for investment uh, be it risk aversion after the crisis be it cyclical although it's harder to believe at this point it could be cyclical or be it be be it that we need a negative rate just to keep the economy turning over now this is a very disturbing thing and it gets you into all the issues of productivity but from the central bank's point of view if they're not if they're finding that you get a recession, if you raise rates at this point, that's telling you something about
2: the real economy. It's not telling you something about the central banks. So, Adam, I'm actually kind of amazed at how well the sterling has kind of held in there over the last week as you know, we've had some very unprecedented things happening in the House of Parliament. What do you think Theresa May can bring to the House of Commons on Monday that might support the sanguine outlook that at least the currency markets seem to be? forecasting. Well,
7: well Paul, I, I think here I'm not very different from a lot of what you all and Bloomberg have already been analyzing and reporting. I think it was just a lot of this was already priced in, and people perhaps a bit wishfully, but I think reasonably think that there's more chance of a good resolution and less chance of a hard Brexit, no-deal Brexit. So that's kept Sterling afloat. Um, what can May bring on Monday is very difficult. I, I think the the ways we get out of this are either a people's vote, meaning a referendum directly on no-deal Brexit versus remain, or basically May capitulates and she goes to to essentially Norway+++, plus, plus, plus which means uh, in the EU in economic terms, out in political terms. She won't do that because she cares too much about free movement. She's too anti-immigration. She won't do that because the people in her party on the right wing won't support it. And she won't do that because Jeremy Corbyn wants to create chaos. What it should be is a cross-party vote in favor of suspension of Article 50 for the good of the country, but that's not going to
2: happen. Do you expect the European Union to make any meaningful concessions to allow May to get some kind of deal through Parliament? As,
7: as my friend Jonathan Portis, who is one of the leading British analysts of Brexit, has said, you know, for the heart of hearing, what the EU has said is, you compromise on freedom of movement, we're happy to talk deal. But if you don't move any of your red lines, don't expect us to change anything um and so you know there is there are these rumors that they might sell out the irish in some sense because the irish backstop which is a complicated issue yeah. is very symbolic for the right wing of the conservative party but in the end i don't think they will
0: Adam Posen, this is so important with your work at the uh, Bank of England and your expertise on Germanic society and the whole continental historical economic movement. All this is great, but the bottom line for Leave is a nostalgia for another time. Maybe to rebuild Absolutely. the empire or to Absolutely. go back out and do WTO, say, younger George Herbert Walker Bush right. gap kind of stuff. How do you frame that nostalgia for 2030?
7: No, I, Tom, I think you've got your finger on it exactly. This is the fantasists. I mean, we saw this even from Neil Ferguson a couple of years ago, although he's since recanted, that, oh, we're going to break up the EU and essentially and have you know the northern, essentially white, conservative uh, states all come together and we're going to have a Hanseatic League and we're going to do this. And then these fantasies that for some reason India or Australia would care more about trading up with the UK at this point than with the rest of the EU. Even if there wasn't resentment over the the past uh, 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 colonialism, (laughs) it's just stupid for those countries to think that way now. So it is an imperial fantasy, it is a a right-wing fantasy, but unfortunately Corbyn and some on the left share it because they they have a different fantasy from the 30s, which is Stalinist socialism in one country. Let us continue.
0: Adam Posen, with us. Wound up on Brexit and, of course, working at the Peterson Institute where he has put together a terrific team of uh, people. He mentions Dr. Blanchard. I uh, cited an Olivier Blanchard chart from, I think, 10 years ago at AEA, and one of our wonderful guests today was using it to show Brexit dynamics. This was on a log basis, so I don't know if we should do logarithms on radio. Maybe that won't work. Are you buying a snow shovel for this weekend, Adam Posen?
7: Uh, I'm not going to Davos Tom like you so you can shovel and I'm not I'm in in sunny Washington.
0: You'll stay in sunny Washington where I hear there's snow and yeah the snow folks seriously in Switzerland and Austria is record levels Adam Posen thank you uh, so much thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts SoundCloud or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.